My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. This is a CBC Podcast. Kathleen Hanna said something in our conversation you're going to hear today that really stuck with me. She said, when you're dancing, it's really hard to punch someone. She was talking about the early days of her band La Tigre, super influential band who deliberately built these safe spaces for the queer community and for feminist conversation by making music that you could dance to. You'll hear what it's been like to be back on the road as La Tigre and to bring a whole new generation into the fold. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. You're listening to Q. So if you're scrolling TikTok, chances are you might have heard this little ditty. It came out 25 years ago. That's a bit of Decepticon by the band La Tigre. They released it in 1999. I remember that. It was so energizing. It blew up the frame of what music was. Uh, And you can hear two decades later, over two decades later, it is still just as infectious. La Tigre was formed by the musician Kathleen Hanna, who you might know from her other bands, Bikini Kill and Julie Ruin. At the start, it was her with Sadie Benning and Johanna Faitman. Sadie Left was replaced by J.D. Sampson, who's been there ever since. Now, after a very extended hiatus, we're talking since 2007, La Tigre is back on the road performing their songs, not only to an audience that is super excited to see them return to the stage, but to new fans who are just now getting to know their music. And once again, they're doing all of this in a pretty politically contentious time. Kathleen Hanna and J.D. Sampson joined me to talk about it. JD, Kathleen, welcome to Q. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for being here. So I have to start here. Kathleen, I saw a video um, of you guys performing in Paris last month. You did the song that we heard in the intro, which has so many words. So it's already got to be a a very demanding cardiovascular experience. And then after, (laughs) after singing the entire thing, you go off stage, you get a jump rope, and then you go at it for like 30 more seconds. How are you doing this? Um, it's a lot of cocaine. No, I'm just kidding. I don't do drugs, but um, I don't know. I have no idea. It's like, you know, Dr. Footlights. It's like, as soon as you get out there, the normal rules of like body stuff don't apply anymore. When the excitement levels there, it's hard not to just, you know, jump on that surfboard and ride the wave. The people are so pumped to see you. JD, what it's been, what's it been like for you to be back on stage with, with La Tigre? It's, it's been so you know, beautiful and invigorating, I guess, not just because of the fans, but also I think the relationship between the three of us has like grown so much in the past 20 years and it's fun to be together. Um, Somebody mentioned something in a review about 
watching a band that has as much fun as the audience. And um, I don't know, that really struck a chord with me just thinking about um, that energy exchange, I think has been, has been kind of the, the takeaway for me so far. Kathleen, can you take me back to, to the year that La Tigra formed and your first building, building that surfboard, like paint me a picture of how the band began. I mean, it was really me and Johanna at first, just writing the record ourselves in a really disgusting basement. It was like actually a sub-basement of a sub-basement. So it's like <laughs> two floors down, total fire trap, like illegal rental, um, smelled like total fungus. But, you know, we had like an eight-track reel-to-reel and a bunch of old 80s equipment. Um, and we were both really into electronic music. And it was just this really amazing creative time of moving to New York and, you know, making the decision to kind of start for the first time in my life. Like I had just been looking at so much negativity and negative stuff. Cause like maybe I'm a bikini kill. I've gotten a lot of crap. There's a lot of violence surrounding our shows. The more girls up front, the better. And if anybody is fucking with you at this show because of certain reasons and you need to come up front, come up front and, I was able to start looking at all of the positive things that were in my life and the positive things that had happened culturally. Um, and Joe and I kind of became a songwriting team in that basement. And it was a really, really special time. Bikini Kill that you mentioned was like a massive part of the riot girl movement, hugely important, influential. As you mentioned, there was a lot of negativity that you had to deal with. And I think it's really interesting that you turned that into fun music. Like you called it the the dance party after the protest, what you're doing with La Tigra. Like, how did that happen? How did you find the, the balance between expressing what you needed to express, but also making it sound so fun? Well, I mean, you know, there's tons of bands that have done that before us in groups like, you know, Public Enemy, Style Council, you know, Eddie Grant, Electric Avenue. Great example of a song that's talking about poverty and racism wrapped up in this beautiful kind of pop package. Now in the street there is violence and And I, it just really appealed to me because, you know, I want to talk about the world around me and how it affects me and my friends and other people. But also, you know, in Bikini Kill, I was kind of sick of the violence. And when you're dancing, it's really hard to punch someone. <laughs> it's like giving a dog a carrot to carry around in their mouth so that they don't fight anybody. I, I felt like there was a lot of things, changes that we made in Lee Tigre's live set to me were really, really practical things like charging more money. Because if you charge more money and you're able to pay yourself and have a decent crew so that you sound better every night, you not only have a better show, but, you know, jerky, crusty white dudes don't show up at your show throwing beer cans at your head because they will pay $5 to do that, but they won't pay $18 to do that. You know what I mean? So... There were things like that. And also making dance music is just like it attracts a different audience. It attracts people 
who are coming to have a good time and not coming there to like beat each other up or something. It's like a, a function, a functional thing as well as like an artistic, artistic thing. Um, JD, what do you remember about those those early days? I know that you joined a little bit after the first inception of the band, but did you have experience of that sub basement of a of a sub basement? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that one of my first experiences working with the band was in that sub basement, and I it did smell of fungus, but um, it was a really beautiful, creative space that gave us a lot of great memories. Yeah, my you know I had heard of La Tigra from some friends, mutual friends, and uh, had met Kathleen, Joe, and Sadie actually separately just from the feminist art community. And I was a filmmaker at the time, so got involved in the projection for the band. And then soon enough, Kathleen and Joe were like, you're coming on stage. (laughs) And, um, you know, ended up rehearsing in that same sub-basement where I was helping them out with projection. So it was a really beautiful time. Uh, I felt super grateful to be involved in the next chapter of like something that I thought was so revolutionary and important to my community and the dance party after the protests, you know, it felt like such a, such an important time to, to be there. La Tigre put out their debut album in 1999 for people who don't remember exactly what was going on. Can you sort of say why it was so revolutionary at that time? Well, I mean, I think for me, I had, I was in college and we were, you know, at the moment, really like building for me a, a queer and feminist community um, that was about changing a lot of the, you know, basically focusing on like becoming a task force and changing rules and changing laws. And we had the death of Matthew Shepard. We were protesting in the streets in the city, and this felt like a perfect way to connect and sweat with each other. Matthew yeah. Shepard is the gay man who was killed in a in a hate crime. Do I have that right? Just so that people can That's remember. That's correct. Yeah, okay. So it just felt really important to be um, holding space with each other in a way that felt like we could transcend. Um, I think dance music has a particular possibility of, of like a spiritual connection to music and letting go through a journey. And so I think those loops and samples and and um, beats really allowed for a different kind of music, live music experience um, and music experience in general, where people were able to lose themselves together and feel safe enough to do so. Mm. So I think that that it was a really important time for that. Kathleen, can you remember a moment on stage where you realized that exactly what JD is describing was happening, like that you were facilitating this collective experience? One of the times when I realized that kind of what we were trying to achieve, (laughs) we were achieving was when we played this show that was called Carson Daly. It was like a nighttime music show or something. Making their U.S. television debut, performing Decepticon off their self-titled album. This is La Tigra. We didn't know that People in our community knew we were playing and got tickets and showed up. So when we walked on stage to play, there were all of these people, like some who were artists and activists that we knew, and just a big group of 
queer art makers, rebel rousers, like right in front of us dancing. (sighs) And I felt so loved and supported in that moment. Like it made me feel like just this huge achievement. I don't know. It was just a really big moment for me. It wasn't necessarily like, oh, I've done this great thing. It was more like people appreciate us and that feels so good, you know, because that was really the goal is like, if you can't feel free dancing in these spaces that are typically created for like straight white guy rock bands or whatever, if you can't have like, you know, five minutes where you can dance and be really goofy and have a good time with your friends, like, how are you going to expect freedom in the rest of your life? Mm. You know, and so that that's always been a big deal about the dancing and stuff is like, I know that in my life, when a band has created a space for me to feel joyous and really be in my body and having a good time, it's given me the hope that I need to go through the rest of my days. You know what I mean? That's big. Yeah. I mean, I just, you know what I mean? It's like, I'm like, I always want to feel like this. Like you have a really great experience and you're like, wait, other people feel like this all the time. Like they're allowed to take up space. I didn't know I was allowed to take up space. I thought I was just dancing and then guys at shows and guys would always come up to me and be like, ooh, I like the way you dance. I don't think it's a problem because most of the girls ask for it. How do they ask for it? The way they act, the way they, I, I can't say the way they dress because that's an own personal choice. And I've always wanted to create spaces where that doesn't happen, where it's not about the male gaze and like, it's about having a good time together and sweating out, you know, some of your stuff. Hopefully it's therapeutic because it's therapeutic for me. Mm. Can you compare that, like the moment that you just talked about on the Carson Daly show to what's happening now and who you're seeing turn up at, at your shows to, to dance in these spaces that you're creating? Sure. I think Paris is like a great example of seeing an intergenerational crowd of feminists and queers kind of come back to where they left, where we left off in the early 2000s. By the second song, we had people crowd surfing in the balconies. We could see friends of ours, filmmakers, artists, um, people that are some of our idols dancing. And in the front row, there were six-year-olds who, you know, were at their first concert ever. And so I think this like juxtaposition of, you know, young and old is really taking us back to this realization that this is like a a reunion of not just each other and the audience, but a concept of being smart and having fun while, while doing so, you know, it's really powerful to stand on stage and talk about critique and talk about you know, not having autonomy over our bodies and the lyrics feel just as relevant as they did 20 years ago. It's complicated, difficult, sad, depressing, frustrating, but being in that room together with all these people that feel the same way as us um, and are all fighting the same fight is kind of the, the beauty of it. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl! 
Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. When you decided to get the band back together and get out, not back together, but when you decided to, you know, pack up your bags and and tour together again, what were you expecting? Like, what were you what were you hoping for? I didn't really have any expectations except for I wanted to, like, have really cool videos and really cool costumes Mm. and play and play really well. And then it was just it's kind of up to the people who want to come what it's going to be like, like you just don't know until you go out there. So I wasn't really expecting anything. I mean, when the show started selling out, I was expecting people to show up, um, which was great, but um, definitely the intergenerational thing, you know, especially right now when people are so divided um, here in the United States, the ununited States, there's like, there's so many, things dividing us. And one of those things is, you know, generations are started as a marketing concept to create a group called the teenagers that could be marketed to. Yeah. And then, you know, now we have all these names like baby boomer and Gen X and Gen Z. And part of it is like, yeah, there can be like funny stuff about making jokes about, you know, Oh, this group of people did this or this, but you know, there's also this thing that by doing that, by separating us into generations, we're not sharing information with each other. And like, I need the younger generation to call me on my shit. I need the generation, the younger generation who's like, you know, they know the language that is being used now. And they can be like, no, like, that's not how we talk about that anymore. Here's how we talk about it. And I learned from that. And I feel really, really lucky that um, so many younger people are doing such great intersectional work. So I'm what I'm seeing is that they're coming at political and social and cultural issues always from a larger lens. And I think that's re- really beautiful and really important. There's also things that, you know, older generations have learned that, you know, we need to like kind of pass down, not in a condescending way, but share our histories of like, hey, you know, you're not alone in experience, you know, speaking out and then having this horrible backlash against you, whether you're an artist or a band or an activist, we can say like, hey, you know, we had that stuff happen too. We kept going. The sun's still going to rise tomorrow if you have a bad show or whatever. But none of that's going to happen if we don't occupy the same space. And so that's been one of the great things is being like, these people are occupying the same space, like people of all different ages and are looking at each other with like admiration and love. You know what I mean? Like we like the same thing. We found something we had in common. And I guess I, I hope that there's a little bit of ageism being challenged in, in what we're doing. And it is, it is pretty remarkable to be in my fifties and, you know, be out on stage again and having a larger audience than we often did back when we first started. You know, like we sometimes played to like 200 people and now we're playing to like thousands. Mm. What you what you said about fighting ageism and sort of an intergenerational exchange, 
as you're saying that, like, I can't picture that happening online in the same way that it does in a physical space. Like when you're when you're at a concert and you have what you described, which is, you know, maybe original original fans who are whatever age they are, all the way down to six year old kids and you're all rocking out to the same thing. It's completely it's it's easy. It's implied to forget that anyone is any particular age because you're sharing an experience. And it's very different than the kind of exchange between people of different ages that happens online. So maybe can we end by just talking about the value, I guess, of like of being in a physical space and sharing music? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll just say, I would say like maybe the climax of the show is this medley that starts with the song Get Off the Internet and it's kind of a reimagining of the song New Production um, with robot voices um, kind <laughs> of um, suggesting an AI identity um, and the words are Get Off the Internet, I'll Meet You in the Streets. And I think we leave the stage for this to do a, a costume change. And I do think that it's not a song that we ever have done live, but I think it really plays an important part in the show where people just recognize that they are there together. And I think, um, you know, obviously the internet has brought us a lot of community and a lot of great things. And I don't think that there is this black and white thinking around the internet and technology in general. Um, but I do think that it is a really special moment in the show to recognize the presence of each other and um, being at a venue, listening to live music. So, yeah. Like we're not even yeah. on stage, like it, they can look at the video, but that's the time where people start looking at each other and going, wait, what's happening? Where are they? What happened? Where'd they go? And that's by design. Well, I think it's really cool what you're doing and congratulations on just this really cool tour that you're that you're having and bringing people together like this. Awesome. Okay, thanks to you both. See you on stage sometime soon. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. You're welcome. TKO, Wella Tigre. Before that, you heard my conversation with Kathleen Hanna and J.D. Sampson from the band. In case all of that talk about sharing space, dancing with people, getting sweaty together inspired you to see them live, you might be in luck if you are in Toronto tomorrow night or Montreal on Saturday. They're playing shows. That's it for this episode of the podcast, but you can find another episode in your feed right now. It is a conversation with Jason Moran, acclaimed jazz pianist, about James Reese Europe. 
Now, James Reese Earp is one of those names that when you hear his story, you kind of shake your head and you say, how have I not heard of this person before? Or maybe you have. I hope that you have. He set the groundwork, lay the groundwork for jazz in the early 20th century. He's been called the Martin Luther King of music for bringing black music to Carnegie Hall. He also, when served in the First World War, led the brass band. His story is incredible. And you can hear Jason Moran tell a bunch of that story to Tom Power right now in your podcast feed. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. I'll see you next time. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.